0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we have two very special guests, Elena Noor of the Asia Society Policy Institute, And our very own Greg Poling, director of the Southeast Asia program at CSIS. We're going to be talking about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, also known as IPEF. We're going to dissect this with the trade guys. All this is coming right up. Stay tuned. Trade guys, we have some very special guests with us today. We have with us... Alina Noor, who is at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and we have our very own Greg Poling, who is the director of our Southeast Asia program at CSIS and of our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative project. Welcome to the Trade Guys. We want to talk Indo-Pacific today, specifically the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. First of all, Greg, I want to go to you. What is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and
1: is this a new economic arrangement or type of trade tool? great to be on the trade, guys. The fact that you're asking me probably tells you part of the answer. It's not a trade deal. We know that. So we we know what it's not. The IPEF, as they're calling it, seems to be the plan B for an administration who's getting kicked around rhetorically a lot in the region for not having a trade agenda. And the Biden White House is not willing to go to the Congress and try to renew TPA and try to negotiate a free trade agreement. So their best option seems to be to tell Commerce and USTR to figure something out. I think that we've got several buckets that are of interest on things like supply chain resiliency and infrastructure. But we've also got this new trade architecture that's not going to be a trade deal that it doesn't seem anybody in Southeast Asia is all that excited about.
0: Elena, you're new to the podcast. What's your take on this?
2: Yeah, so thanks for having me. I agree with Greg about what it's not So just to be a little more positive, I guess it's an economic engagement platform that is going to try to facilitate trade, and we can get more into that later. But I see it as more of a rules-making and standard-setting initiative that may be welcomed by some in the region, but also may raise concern domestically among some in, particularly in Southeast Asia.
0: Guys, trade guys, if this isn't a trade deal, what the heck are we doing here? It's a mystery to me, at least. And I'm
3: really delighted Greg and Lena are joining us because usually when you approach any sort of an agreement, there are two questions. What's the scope? And scope can be the the breadth of issues and the breadth of, of nations or economies who are party to the agreement. Beyond scope, you look for ambition. And I'm having difficulty determining either the scope of this agreement or how ambitious it will be. I've been floundering. So delighted you're here. Bill, you've you've written about this. Bill, you're not
0: floundering, are you? No, I flounder in the pool, but I don't flounder <laughs> in the pot. I have seen that. You do not flounder in the pool. You're a fine swimmer. I'm I'm fresh from it. I went this morning, actually. Oh, good.
4: Well, it's a good week and everybody's on vacation. So Yeah. What's depressing, I think Greg put his finger on what is a larger problem with our trade policy, is we seem to be defining most of what we're doing negatively. We're talking about what is not rather than what it is. Because we've had this same conversation with the EU Trade and Technology Council. And that's also defined, it's not TTIP, it's not a free trade agreement. It appears to be another, a forum where we can get together. We get, get together on, on the things that we already agree on and then talk about how we can enhance cooperation, which is kind of a low bar. I think with the IPEF, it's again, it's not a trade agreement. It's intended to do what I think what Alina said. Underneath all that is the same, and maybe Greg and, and Alina can comment on this, I think that the overall objective is the same as Obama's, which was how do we demonstrate to the Asian countries, particularly the Southeast Asian countries, that the United States is there to stay and that we intend to have a significant both strategic and economic presence in the region. I think for Obama, that's what TPP was about. I think Biden has been criticized by everybody, including us, for not pursuing that. This is the alternative. But, Greg, don't you think the underlying objective really is to kind of project a U.S. presence in the region? And is it going to do that?
1: Yeah, the the objective, as you said, just like with TPP, was to prove that the U.S. has more than just naval ships and U.S. aid programs. It's to show that we're willing to engage in economic rulemaking and thereby deliver public goods for our partners. And in that sense, I think a lot of partners in Southeast Asia and throughout the wider region are eager to help make IPEF succeed. I mean, they, they want the U.S. in the region. Nobody wants to be in a region dominated entirely by Chinese rulemaking. The administration is struggling to meet them halfway on this and offer a package that not just U.S. demands, but also really does help provide benefits to the region.
0: So couldn't they come up with a better acronym, IPEF, I-P-E-F, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework? Isn't there something better we could call it? Well, at least APEC was, you could vocalize it. You right? Know. <laughs> This is is hard, (laughs) IPEF. Elena, what do you think of all this?
2: There's very little incentive with what's being offered right now for a number of countries in the region. I mean, what countries in the region, particularly in Southeast Asia, are interested in is market access, and that's off the table. I think there could be some window for capacity building to work towards some of those higher standards that the IPEF seems to be offering and insisting on. But it's going to be a really hard sell for the domestic constituencies of Southeast Asian countries, particularly after the debacle of the TPP.
0: So according to the White House, as they envision it, IPEF will serve as an umbrella under which separate negotiations on specific policy pillars will be conducted. I'm not really sure what the heck that means. But what countries are we talking about that are even likely to be invited to participate in this? That's a really good question. And I was struck yesterday The uh, USTR's
4: Labor Advisory Committee, Labor Policy Advisory Committee, submitted its report recommending that most of the Southeast Asian nations be excluded because they, in, in the Labor Advisory Committee's judgment, which is mostly members of organized labor, they don't have adequate worker standards or human rights standards. I don't know that USTR is going to buy that, but... What it's looking like right now is the obvious participants are the people we generally refer to as the usual suspects, which are countries that are already agree with us on most of this stuff, meaning Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Singapore, maybe Korea. I think if you're producing an, you know, a framework that consists entirely of people that are already doing pretty much what you want them to do and are already pretty much in agreement on policy, you're not really moving the, the ball forward very much. And I think expert regional experts, and this is why we have two of them with us, have said, if you don't have Southeast Asian nations in this, you really don't have very much. But if you talk to organized labor, you know, they don't want Vietnam on worker rights grounds. They don't want the Philippines. They don't want Thailand. They don't want Malaysia. They don't want Indonesia. And they certainly don't want Myanmar.
0: So that doesn't leave a lot. But Alina, why don't they want Thailand and the Philippines?
2: (laughs) That's anybody's guess. But I think some of the issues are to do with e-commerce or digital, the digital economy. Some of it has to do with labor, obviously. It doesn't help that there's going to be the splitting of countries and kind of preferential treatment of certain countries in the region over others. And if the U.S. is going to be in the game, in the economic game, in the Indo-Pacific and in Southeast Asia, then it should be prepared to be inclusive, as the IPEF notionally says. Remember also that a lot of these Southeast Asian countries are already in many other traditional trade arrangements. And so what more can the IPF bring, I think is the question that's on many people's minds.
1: Greg, what's on your mind? Well, if the membership's a huge problem. What's gonna end up happening, I worry, is as Bill indicated, you get the usual suspects at least in the trade pillar, which means Singapore will be the only member of ASEAN, only South Asian country who takes part in that. But the administration is gonna have, I think, a bigger tent. They're saying that these different pillars, all the rest of which other than trade will be run by commerce, will be open in a a la carte manner. And so what you're probably gonna get is most Southeast Asian countries will make some gestures toward the trade pillar. They'll participate in the initial discussions, but they're not actually gonna negotiate anything with USTR. And then they're gonna be eager to take part in the supply chain resiliency pillar or the infrastructure pillar. The corruption taxation pillar is a little tougher sell. I think you're likely to get pretty much everybody in South Asia there except for Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. And I do think the administration is now going to include the Philippines and Thailand, maybe even Brunei, which was a a real head-scratcher. You run into a separate problem here, though. I think a lot of countries in the region are going to look around and say, weren't we going to get all this anyway? Wasn't Kamala Harris in Singapore and Vietnam talking about supply chain resiliency? Hasn't Kerry been to the region talking about decarbonization? Are you actually going to tell us if we don't sign on to this, you're not going to help us decarbonize? Nobody's going to believe that. So it's not clear that there's any incentives for compromise.
0: Well, that's my next question. So, Scott, let me ask you this. Some of the policy areas are regarded by potential participants as a laundry list of U.S. demands. What is the U.S. actually offering in exchange? That's an important question. I mean, I note one of the seven issues that the
3: USTR will be responsible for is agriculture. Well, that's a big enchilada. Oh, yeah. Right? And... uh, And there's a lot of interest in agriculture market access, both by American farmers and by agriculture industries throughout the region. It's going to be a big issue. I have no idea what they're going to do. And because they've called this an administrative arrangement, it sounds to me like we're just going to ignore the Congress on this subject, which will make it even more difficult to do anything on agriculture. Once again, it's the scope issues don't really resonate as something that's going to produce a result. Likewise, there are some of these trade issues, part of the trade pillar, where uh, either there's domestic dispute, for instance, competition policy. There's a big domestic argument about whether we use the consumer standard or go back to sort of the neo Brandeis uh, standard that's being promoted within the administration. We, we have, we're not settled ourselves on competition policy, and yet we're going to create norms outside the United States? Well, good luck. Some of it's it's clearer, okay? Digital economy, yeah, check that one, get that. I don't know what we're gonna talk about with these nations on trade facilitation because the US has much worse port throughput than any of Indo-Pacific uh, economies that I'm aware of. We also have, uh, the Pacific Ocean was a pretty big place, and at least in the days of APEC, which is now ancient history, it included Latin American countries. Chile was always first in line to, to be included. They were one of the original P4 that became the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So I'm not sure whether anybody's raised that issue, but uh, it's a mystery. Bill, do we have a rant coming here? Is this rant worthy?
4: Almost. Um, <laughs> it's been a couple things. I guess if you look at the globe, the Western, uh, are we the Western Pacific? Chile, Colombia, Peru,
3: Mexico, Canada, Central American countries. That I would guess. be the eastern rim of the Pacific. That's oh, the eastern sh- rim of the oh. Pacific? Well, if you, if, if, you, if you orient on the Pacific, the U.S. is east and, and Japan is west. So forget that stuff about the Far East. That was that was from London's view. So the Eastern Pacific, they seem. All to have, I know is
0: Malibu's in the Pacific. That's where <laughs> I go. Yeah, and our West Coast. Yeah,
3: is they
4: they seem to have ruled out any of those countries from the beginning. They seem not to be interested in pursuing a, a number of Southeast Asian countries. When you get into some of the details, there's a good bit of talking past each other. And I was struck, the discussion about agriculture that that Scott alluded to, I was intrigued because when Ambassador Ty testified two weeks ago before both House Ways and Means and Senate Finance separately, as she does twice a year on trade, there was a lot of conversation about this and a lot of talk about what are you going to do on the IPEF? And there was a lot of pressure on her from farm state representatives to what are you doing about market access, you know, for farm pro- U.S. farm products. And it struck me that when people use the term market access, they mean very different things. The representatives and the senators were talking about, how do we get more access for U.S. farm products in Asia? The Asian countries are talking about, how do we get more access for our products in the United States? I think Ambassador Tai, when they announced this in the beginning last fall, said, we're not going to do market access She was thinking about the Asian demand for more market access to the United States and indicating that she wasn't very interested in that. There's been an outcry from farmers here, but why aren't you doing more to break down regulatory barriers, sanitary, phytosanitary barriers in the region so we can sell more grain, meat, fruit, vegetables, et cetera, to them? And that leads to the question of what we've been wrestling with in our work here, which is. Every country's sort of asking what's in it for us, you know, and if the U.S. position is we're really interested in you giving us more access to your markets for our agriculture, but we're not at all interested in giving you more access to our market for your agriculture, I don't see the basis for an agreement there. Alina, what do you think of this?
2: It's going to be an uphill battle, I think, for the U.S. There's obviously interest in the region to get the U.S. more involved economically. But the details, because they're so slim right now, it just makes any serious consideration of anything related to the IPEV really difficult. So I think there'll be a lot of countries will be on the lookout for the details. I know Ambassador Thai is out in the region right now. But... What it means, especially with a number of countries coming up for elections in the region, is going to be a key concern for policymakers in those countries.
0: Greg, is the United States planning to offer any real incentives, whether they're financial or technical resources, to achieve the goals, where the, you know,
1: whatever these goals actually are? I think there will be incentives. Those incentives will not be... In the trade pillar that USDR is going to negotiate. So I think basically USDR is playing bad cop and they're leaving it to commerce to figure out how to be good cop, which doesn't make any sense because the agreement is going to be a la carte. So everybody's going to say, okay, I want all this stuff. If commerce and, and other departments are finding ways to get me funding on green infrastructure and decarbonization and supply chain resiliency, I'll take all of that. Why should I negotiate with USDR on the other bucket though if, if it's not tied together? So I, I think that's going to be extremely difficult. The one piece that I think is still up in the air is this digital economy portion, which right now is locked in as one of the seven items under USDR's pillar. There is significant pressure, both within the US government and from other partners like the Japanese and Australians, to break that out because everybody can see this train wreck coming. And they're saying, look, we know that there's only going to be five countries in the trade pillar because those are the only five countries that are going to meet your labor standards and your ag standards and so on break the digital economy part out, and let's at least get a little progress done on what is probably the most important unsettled regime rules here in the region. And I think if you did that, you could get certain Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, would probably sign on to a separate digital agreement. They're not going to sign on to the big trade package because there's no market access.
0: Well, let me ask about that, Scott. You know, In traditional trade negotiations and agreements, market access is usually the most attractive incentive for countries to accept U.S. requests for higher standards. So what actually explains the administration's refusal to offer market access here?
3: That remains a mystery. You're absolutely right that the way you get ambitious outcomes in a trade agreement, traditionally, what most countries want is they want to sell stuff here in the United States. Right. And you you offer improved access for the products that they're facing barriers on. And in return, you get reforms and the kinds of disciplines that make life better for U.S. exporters and, and U.S. firms abroad. This is a logic that goes all the way back to the original NAFTA. So some of the most important reforms in Mexico were not market access reforms explicitly. There were things like transparency. We in the United States have a, have a great luxury called the Administrative Procedures Act that requires rulemaking by the government to have, have notice and allow for comment. That didn't exist at all in Mexico before the NAFTA. The transparency chapter essentially read in our Administrative Procedures Act and made life for everybody, commercial life for everybody in Mexico a lot easier. So those are the kinds of reforms the U.S. is usually pushing for. And you use the carrot of market access to incentivize those reforms. There doesn't seem to be any of that at heart of this. Now, I'm not opposed to creating a place for intense conversations. And I do think that APEC, which has been this arrangement that has served the US reasonably well over the years as a place to tee up initiatives, as a place to work things out in advance of formal agreements. I think we're kind of at the end of the cycle with APEC because it includes all three Chinas, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and and mainland, and it includes Russia among their members and does not include some of the fast growing economies in uh, Southeast Asia. So we gotta uh, sort that out. But I'm having trouble seeing how this is a good idea any place but inside a subconference conference room in Washington, D.C. <laughs> All
0: right. So speaking of subconference rooms, Bill, short of market access, and I'm sure this is being debated in conference rooms, short of market access, what can and should the administration offer to participating countries? Well, the only thing they've
4: come up with so far is money. And Greg alluded money to works, this. Money works, right? Money can work money for decarbonization, money for infrastructure. I think those things will both be attractive. A lot of the things that we want them to do in the sort of transparency regulatory space, like what Scott was just talking about with Mexico, they're a win-win. I mean, they're good for the other countries just as much as they're good for us because they're good for enhancing commerce in, in, in both directions. That doesn't mean they're going to be welcome in those countries because you know because they mean change. If you're going to do trade facilitation, which is how do we get things through customs going in and going out more easily. You know, how do we facilitate trade? What you run into there are, among other things, is corruption and, you know, corrupt customs services in countries where stuff gets in because you gave somebody a bribe. And if you reform all that, which is good for everybody, including those countries, you're breaking what the trade geeks call a whole bunch of iron rice bowls because you're taking illegal income um, away from people. But money is the biggest incentive. Good regulation and good transparency ought to be an incentive for the reason I just said. But I have a feeling that there's a lot of countries that aren't going to buy
0: that. Well, Greg, let me ask you this. With several policy buckets such as digital and decarbonization, the U.S. is constrained in what it can achieve domestically due to lack of political will. So how can the U.S. reconcile stalled programs at home while trying to seek to elevate such standards abroad?
1: I don't know that anybody has a great answer, which is why Commerce and USTR and the White House and state are all on this merry-go-round arguing about what IPEF is supposed to be. There is an important subtext here that is keeping a lot of partners engaged in IPEF, including the Japanese and the Australians, the Kiwis and some in South Asia. And that is the idea that it's a first step. And you hear this. Every single time a foreign official talks about IPEF, and you hear from a lot of U.S. officials, although not from USDR, we heard it a lot last week at our U.S. ASEAN Business Council uh, conference. A first step toward what? To rejoining TPP, or now the CPTPP. The only reason that anybody in the region is going to be interested in this is because they believe that keeping the U.S. talking buys time for eventually a more sane trade policy to bring us back into CPTPP. And if they're ever disabused of that idea that we'll ever come back, then we're in real trouble.
3: So it is a trade agreement, then, uh, when you really get down to it. It's a trade agreement without being a trade agreement. We love that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because after all, it's all about being trade guys. It's all
0: about being trade guys. All right. So I want to put it to all of you. Uh, Let's start with Alina. Overall, will the will IPEF be a value add beyond ex- the existing regional architectures, in your view?
2: There's a potential for it to value add. I'm not sure what that potential looks right now because of all these uncertainties surrounding IPEF. So once those details get fleshed out, then maybe we can have a better assessment and judgment. Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these countries are already members of different uh, trade arrangements, different digital agreements. And so the ball is really in the U.S.'s court to offer something a little more tangible.
1: Greg? If they break a digital chapter out, yeah, this might be value-add. Otherwise, I mostly see it as doing things that we were going to do anyway. Scott, for you first.
3: At its minimum, it is a process for keeping senior U.S. officials talking to senior officials in the region. And if you're in a position where you can't do anything from a policy standpoint, talking is not worthless. So I think I think it's a bridge to something else that that's more meaningful in the future.
0: Not a road to nowhere. Not a road to nowhere. Yes. All right, Bill, you get the benediction.
4: If it leads in the direction that Greg was talking about, that is pushing the US in the direction of ultimately joining CPTPP, then it will be a good thing and it will be a positive addition. I've thought from the beginning they're going to get there eventually. And if this is the way they have to go to get there, it's circuitous and kind of backwards, but if it gets there, that will make it worthwhile. I have to say where I don't agree entirely with Greg is I'm not a fan of breaking out the digital piece. To me, that is, is kind of a surrender. It's important. It's an important piece. But if you break that out, what that's going to mean is you're really going to abandon all the rest. And I think the, the rest won't amount to very much, but you'll have a nice digital agreement, maybe. The, the problem here in part in the U.S. Is it continues to be a political one. The administration is terrified of its own left wing. And they went through a traumatic experience with TPP. And a lot of them, it's the same people that went through that in 2015 and 2016. And for them, nothing's changed. And I thought the politics had changed. I thought the economic landscape had changed. Perceptions of China have certainly changed in in the intervening six years. But when we have talked to the people on the Hill about the IPEF, the reaction we've gotten from them is, that's wrong. Nothing has changed on the Hill. Uh, And you see that in, in, in statements by Senator Warren and others. They are, as opposed to doing this kind of thing in the region, as they've always been, they view it as a giveaway to large corporations and uh, something that hurts the workers. And I have no doubt that they're going to climb on the Labor Advisory Committee's bandwagon and say, why are you going to negotiate with all these Southeast Asian countries that don't respect worker rights? Which is kind of backwards. You know, if you don't talk to anybody because they're not perfect, you know, you're never going to make any progress. Usually in the trade world, what you usually do is get as much as you can out of them and then sign them up and then work with them to make it better. You don't blow them off from the beginning because they're not already where you want them to be. But that seems to be where the administration is. They simply don't want to have that fight within the party. I mean, I don't, I don't think everybody in the administration buys that logic about what trade agreements should look like, but they all buy the logic that we don't need to have that fight right now. Because that's a fight amongst ourselves. It's not a fight with the other party. And that holds them back.
0: And I'm depressed about that. Well, that was a good rant, Bill. I'm sorry you're depressed, though. Well, partisan,
3: partisan polarity strikes again, you know.
0: Before we wrap, let me ask, you know, how much power does the progressive left have on these issues? Hasn't the administration marginalized them somewhat? At, at some level, That probably doesn't matter
3: because it's viewed as an issue that divides the party instead of unites it. And in new mm-hmm. world of, you know, a 50-50 Senate and a 51-49 electorate, you don't want fights within when you can avoid them.
4: It's ironic because if you look at poll data, and particularly poll data about Democrats, there's really overwhelming support for trade and overwhelming support for f- free trade. The distinction, and this comes up all the time, and it, you see it in both parties, is the elected officials are not in the same place as the voters. Mm-hmm. And you see it in both parties, Republican politicians tend to be right now more pro-trade than Republican voters, thanks to Trump. Democratic politicians tend to be less pro-trade than their own voters because they listen to organized labor, which is a very influential voice in the Democratic Party. It is nevertheless a minority voice in the Democratic Party, but a very loud, very effective one.
0: I wanna thank our special guests, Lena, Greg. Thank you for being on The Trade Guys. Thank you for bearing with us, Trade Guys and educating us to what is and what is not a trade agreement. Really a pleasure having you here on the episode today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. And Trade Guys, I don't really need to thank you, but I will anyway. Thanks, Trade Guys. Well, well, you're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome, Andrew. (laughs) Bye now. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.
1: Hey listeners, Greg Polin here, director of the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Just wanted to let you know that we're launching a new podcast on Thursday, April 14th, called Southeast Asia Radio. I'll be joined by my good friend and co-host, the brilliant Alina Noor, director of political and security affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: Along with Simon Tranhutas and other members of the CSIS Southeast Asia team. Hi.
2: Every two weeks, we'll highlight the most important news from the region and dive into candid conversations with leading voices on Southeast Asia and U.S. foreign policy.
0: We'll cover everything you want to know about Southeast Asia.
1: Geopolitics in the region, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, democracy and human rights, nothing is off limits. So join us for Southeast Asia Radio, April 14th, wherever you get your podcasts.